you're listening to Keystone Cold Cases, a podcast where we reignite cold cases across Pennsylvania. Hey, it's Chelsea. Hey, it's Grace. Hey, it's Sarah. Hey, it's Amanda. Today we'll be diving into the well-known case of missing Center County District Attorney Ray Grecar. But before we get into the story, we need to know a little background on him. So who exactly was Ray? Ray grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, and attended a prestigious Catholic school before he went on to study at the University of Dayton. It was then when he received an internship to a local prosecutor's office that he fell in love with law, but it wasn't the only thing he fell in love with. It was there where he met his wife, Barbara, who was also attending the same university. Ray completed his undergrad, married Barbara, and moved to Cleveland to finish his pursuit of his law degree at Case Western Reserve University of Law. Shortly after graduating, Ray and Barbara moved to State College, PA, so that she could take a job at Penn State University, and Ray could assume the stay-at-home dad role for their adopted baby girl, Laura. It wasn't long before Ray was offered an assistant job at the Center County DA's office with DA David Grine. Ray went on to be elected as Center County DA in 1985, 89, 93, 97, and yet again in 2001, which I can imagine would put some strain on your marriage over the years. In fact, Ray and Barbara divorced in 91, and he remarried not long after in 96, but that also led to divorce after only like four years. Ray moved on rather quickly and started dating Patricia, who also went by Patty, and I'll refer to her as Patty in the story. She happened to be an employee at the courthouse. Two years later, in 2004, Ray announced that he would not be running for re-election and he would retire completely from law after his 60th birthday at the end of December of 2005. So, on April 15, 2005, Patty rolled over when the alarm clock went off to say good morning to Ray and get ready to start the day. However, today... Ray decided he wanted to take off and go for a drive. Apparently, he had done this in the past, and it was kind of like to clear his head and whatnot, so it wasn't completely out of character for him to do this. One time, he actually took off and drove to Cleveland to attend an Indians game as kind of like a spur-of-the-moment thing. Ray might be my spirit animal in this in this regard, anyway. <laughs> I mean, it is kind of cool to take off work and just drive to Cleveland for a game. So it wasn't something to worry about with him. Patty went on, got ready for work, left the house, and got to work at a normal time. Around 11.30 that morning, she got a call from Ray to let her know that he was driving through Brush Valley, which is northeast of Center Hall, and it's considered route PA Route 192. He let her know that he wouldn't be home to let the dog out, so she would have to stop there before she goes to the gym. They ended the call with, I love you. She got off work at the courthouse and headed home to let the dog out and then headed to the gym. She assumed that he would surely be home after that. But when she walked in the door later that night, he wasn't home. It's dark outside. She hasn't heard anything from him. Maybe he had an accident. He fell asleep behind the wheel. She tried calling, but no one answered. She called multiple times, and then finally around 1130, she was so panicked she called the police to report him missing. Given his status as a public figure... Police immediately put out a bolo for his bright red Mini Cooper. Several police agencies spent hours looking through Central PA for signs of Ray. They alerted six neighboring states since he had been known to leave spur of the moment. 
and it was also pointed out that the Cleveland Indians were playing that night. Eventually, the search efforts expanded nationwide. They pulled his phone records, and they were able to confirm that he was on PA Route 194 when he said he was. The following day started airing ground searches along the road where he told Patty he was. Friends and family got involved, and Patty had to make the hard decision to call his daughter, Laura, in Washington and deliver the news. Laura's heart sank, and she knew there was no way that he left on his own. Something bad had to have happened, so she booked a flight and headed home immediately. Finally, at 6.30 p.m. the following day, and over 50 miles away from his home, Ray's red Mini Cooper was found, but Ray was not inside. It was parked in the first row at the far end of the Street of Shops, which is an antique mall in Lewisburg. Police reported the vehicle was locked, and from the outside there appeared to be no damage, so like it wasn't in an accident or anything like that. Once inside, police were met with a strong smell of cigarette smoke. When they opened the passenger door, they found some ash that appeared to be from a cigarette on the floor. Now, that may not be significant to some people, but for Ray, that was a huge deal because he absolutely hated cigarettes. So to find ash in his vehicle on the passenger side and having the vehicle reek of cigarette smoke was kind of a big red flag for the family. Police also found Ray's county-issued cell phone, which was turned off, and a water bottle that was later confirmed to have his DNA on it and only his DNA. They found they didn't find his keys and they didn't find his wallet. The vehicle was then towed to the state police barracks in Milton for processing. No foreign DNA or foreign nod smudge fingerprints were found inside, but they did find a smudged palm print that was determined to be Patty's. So where is Ray and who was smoking in his vehicle? Police started talking to everyone and hoped somebody saw him and they were just in luck. So I'm going to go over the full timeline, which will kind of fill in some more gaps um, and stay with me because the day prior to him disappearing kind of plays into like his mental state. So Thursday, the day before he disappeared, um, at eight o'clock that morning, he attended a prison board meeting. And during the meeting, he reported to have been mumbling answers to questions and kind of looking outside as if his mind was somewhere else. Between 10.30 and 11, after he left the meeting, he was spotted at the boat launch at Racetown Lake by a doctor that knew him, and it wasn't reported as, like, what kind of doctor it was, and um, if, like, maybe that was a doctor's appointment that he had, like, off the books. Sometime after that, he exchanged an email with a defense attorney regarding the, a case, and he was kind of joking around with her. He also received a call from his daughter, and she usually called a few times a week to catch up. Between 2 and 4, an ADA in the office heard his door forcefully close, which was a habit he had when he was busy or preoccupied. By 5.30, 6 o'clock, Patty and Ray were seen walking in Talleyrand Park by a former county commissioner, Vicki Wedler. And Vicki and him didn't always see eye to eye when she served, but she seemed, she said he looked kind of depressed, but then goes on to say that they were a perfect couple. So I don't know how to take that. 621 security cameras picked up Ray entering the courthouse wearing a fleece. He didn't have his laptop at the time, but he was driving the Mini Cooper. And at 9.03, he was seen leaving. So now we're to Friday, which is the day that he took off work. So between 6 and 8.15, he wakes up. He tells Patty that he's going to take the day off. She goes to work. Between 9 and 10, contractor calls the house and talks to Ray about repairs or maintenance that they were going to have done. 
Between 11 and 11.30, a lawyer sees Ray driving on Route 144 towards Center Hall, and he called Patty at the courthouse between 11.12 and 11.30, and actually went to the switchboard, so they have it timestamped that he did call in and talk to her. And um, he, that was when he said that he was on PA Route 192, and he wouldn't be home to let the dog out, which is, you know, what he said. In the, she had asked in the morning, if you're not going to be home, let us know so that I can go let the dog out. Between 11.30 and 11.35, he was reported turning onto Route 192 towards Lewisburg and driving extremely fast. Between 1 and 12 and 1, he was spotted... In a park, between 12 and 1, Ray was spotted parked along Water Street, just off of Market Street on PA Route 45 in Lewisburg. He got out of his Mini Cooper and was carrying something to the park bench, and he sat on the park bench for a while. The witness didn't say what he was carrying or indicate if he was with anyone at the time. 3 o'clock that day, Ray was seen behind the Center County Courthouse, but this witness doesn't remember if it was Thursday or Friday, and cameras don't show it on Friday. I don't think that's really important because he was seen many times prior and after that, so I don't think it would really change anything. Between 4 and 5, a man remembers seeing a Mini Cooper near the country cupboard on Route 15. The man inside matched Ray's description, and he it was kind of like a look over at a red light kind of deal, and he realized it was him because of a photo that he saw on the news, which the news didn't actually air then until very late the following day. Between 5 and 6, multiple witnesses reported seeing the red Mini Cooper arrive at the parking lot at Street of Shops. Two witnesses confirmed that they saw him carefully choose the parking spot, and the license plate on the Mini Cooper was PFO, which was confirmed to be raised. The vehicle actually belonged to Patty, and she had, like, a vanity plate. Ray had previously visited the street of shops because he was interested in antiques, so it wasn't completely out of character for him to visit there. Between 5.30 and 6.30, the owner said that Ray was with a mystery woman, and... She was described as being between the ages of 30 and 40, 5 foot 8 to 5 foot 10, slender build with short, dark brown hair, or I've also heard with long hair. I, Depending on which report you read, it's short or long. I'm not 100% sure. Supposedly, Ray and this mystery woman would talk and then separate and go into different shops and then come back and like meet back up. There was no signs of it being romantic because the witness said they kind of stood apart from each other when they talked. And it didn't throw up any red flags that it would be, like, a mistress. Police actually withheld the information about the mystery woman. My assumption is is because if she had short hair, it would kind of resemble his girlfriend at the time. But they never really came out and said exactly why they withheld it. But they did release it later. Sometime after Patty gets off work and goes to the gym... Until 11 o'clock at night, Patty is calling Ray's phone constantly and not getting an answer, and I didn't see anywhere where it states whether it went straight to voicemail or if it rang. 11 o'clock, Patty calls the police and reports him missing, and like I said before, at this point, there's bolos going out and police are searching everywhere. So now we're on Saturday, so after he was reported missing. Between 11.30 and 12, Ray was spotted at Street of Shops by two workers at the Remember When restaurant. And at this point, police um, 
And really, everyone is looking for him. So wait, these people saw him after he was reported missing? Um, I mean, was it known that he was missing at this point? Or was there any follow-up on this? So, no one, at this point, it wasn't on, um, like, news outlets. It didn't show up until later, like, around 10 p.m. that night. So, they didn't really know. I think it was more of, like, a people-watching kind of thing. Like, someone pulls in, and he's talking to this girl and, you know, just observing the, the area. Okay, that makes sense. Um, Around the same time, Ray was uh, spotted by the owner of the shopping center, and he said that he looked really anxious and he was not a relaxed person. He seemed to be waiting on someone. Then fast forward to the afternoon where all these searches are beginning and the cell phone data is pulled, um, and they get access to his office computer. Five o'clock, a news reporter calls Ray's cell phone, and it goes straight to voicemail, and then at 6.30, police find his car. So there's way more than that. That's the brief version. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. It's a lot. There's a lot to this case. Um, if you want to see the rest of it, you can just Google the timelines. There's people who have the days, you know, up to six days prior. And I don't know if that really would make a difference. So police start searching the area by helicopter and even brought in dogs to track him from the parking lot where the car was found. The dog tracked the scent from the parking lot, but not beyond the parking lot. And it was believed that the dogs acted in, quote, a manner that possibly could have meant that Ray might have gotten into another vehicle. So could he have left with this mystery woman? So the theory at this point is that he parked his car in the shop's parking lot and then left with someone. So that doesn't really seem to leave room for someone smoking in his car. So something that might answer that is, and that I just recently found, is that Ray's ex-girlfriend was a smoker and she had long dark hair, if we go with like the long hair versus the short, and she matched the age of the mystery woman, so it could have been her. She lives in Harrisburg and works for the Office of Attorney General as a spokesperson, but um, she had seen Ray at a press conference like three weeks before. And I'm wondering if maybe she had her hair up in a way that made it difficult to tell whether she had long or short hair. And that's why people had different descriptions of her. That's possible. Definitely possible. Um, Ray's family immediately noticed the similarities between his disappearance and his brother Roy's death. His vehicle was parked near a bridge and it was over the Susquehanna River. Ray's brother Roy had committed suicide with many similarities to the point that police can't really rule out the idea. Roy had retired from Wright Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio, and was seemingly happy until May of 1996, when Roy told his wife he was going out to buy mulch and then just never returned. Two days later, his vehicle was found at Dayton Park near the Great Miami River, and not long after, his body was recovered from the river. Now, it's reported that Ray always believed that his brother's death was not suicide. He didn't think that he would ever do that to his kids and, like, leave them orphans. But but according to Roy's son and his daughter, Ray never questioned any additional information about the case, like the autopsy report or a police report to support that he didn't believe it. And 
Roy's daughter posted on Reddit that she never thought herself of it being anything other than suicide. So could or would Ray do that given his feelings about his brother's death? Roy was diagnosed with depression and Ray wasn't, but that doesn't always mean that they weren't depressed. So just from things you've mentioned about Ray so far, and I mean, this could be total bias because I'm intimately familiar with depression. It kind of seems like Ray may have actually had depression and maybe he just didn't want to believe that Roy committed suicide because that may confirm some things about himself. I think it's definitely possible. I see a lot with like fellow emergency responders not wanting to admit that anything relating to mental health. So it's definitely possible. Roy's daughter posts a lot about the case on like Reddit and Web Sleuth and is very candid about the fact that her her dad had bipolar depression for years. Like she watched it, she talks about it openly on there and um she says she was the point person for the search for her dad, and never did Ray mention to her that um, he believed it was something else. That's so. interesting that you mentioned bipolar depression, because if Ray happened to have that as well, I mean, people with bipolar disorder can do some very risky things, um, you know, especially if they're in a manic state, so... That could definitely have something to do with it. So leading up to Ray's disappearance, his mental state might indicate that. Um, according to Patty, Ray was extremely tired and was taking naps at lunchtime and even after work. I mean, he was 59 years old and frequently overworked, so I would want a nap too. She suggested that he see a doctor, but he refused. Either he didn't have the time or he just didn't really want to go since there's such a stigma around mental health. Regardless, even his friends and colleagues felt that he was emotionally distant. Ray had a full calendar of events to attend and planned on visiting his daughter after he retired, but he was also showing these signs of being overworked and fatigued. Interested in the theory, police pulled Ray's medical records and found no physical or mental illnesses that would indicate, like, that would support him committing suicide. But to be fair, if he never saw a doctor, then he wouldn't have any records. True. Very true. Um, but on the flip side, there are reports that Ray was happy and excited to retire and didn't show any signs of depression. And most articles, um, you know, mention that he was in that state, that he was more happy than he was depressed. So it's kind of unclear which way to go. So there's been a TikTok trend and I think it's been on different social media platforms, but I've seen it a lot on TikTok where, um, it kind of gives you this, you know, show me when you were at your lowest, um, like when you really felt like your mental health was at rock bottom. And so often I've seen these videos made and a lot of the pictures are, you know, people showing off celebrations or like nights out with friends or, you know, just having a good time, um, graduating or, you know, a whole bunch of different things. Sometimes just knowing that a big change is going to come in life, you may kind of feign joy to cover up this overwhelming anxiety or depression with, I mean, thinking here, he had his retirement coming up at the end of the year and, you know, that's exciting and you're happy, but there's also that looming, 
what am I going to do? Am I going to be able to get by on my pension? Is everything going to be okay? You know, how's this going to affect my daughter? Is there going to be any adverse effects or anything like that? And sometimes you'll see people that are extremely happy on the outside truly are in one of their darkest moments on the inside. It's really hard to judge anything like that. Um, especially because we know he wasn't under any sort of treatment or anything. So there wasn't a therapist, like, you know, if, if anything ever happened with me, you know, my husband could go talk to my therapist and, you know, he didn't have that. So I think it's hard to even say one way or the other, just based on how he acted around people, if that makes sense. This episode of Keystone Cold Cases is sponsored in part by Coco Counseling Center in Hershey, PA, two blocks off of Chocolate Ave. Coco Counseling Center is a Christ-based counseling center specializing in therapy for individuals, couples, and families. Mental health is important to us here at KCC, and great therapists are the first step in seeking treatment for mental health. Coco Counseling Center provides just that. Highly qualified therapists who are real people and who have experienced the real world. For more information about appointments, insurance coverage, and areas of expertise, check out CocoCounselingCenter.com. That's C-O-C-O-A CounselingCenter.com or call 717-298-1366. So another thing to mention is that um, PA law enforcement this is a theory that someone, a, a few people posted that PA law enforcement has a history of attempting to classify cases that are unable or they're unwilling to crack or investigate as suicide. So they did this supposedly in the assistant U.S. attorney Jonathan Luna case, the Pittsburgh DA Robert Dugan, and the case of Gaylord Dissinger, who was an aide and campaign treasurer to the state attorney general. Now, I don't know if any of that's true. It was kind of thrown out there in a few articles. In my heart, I want to think that if they're classifying something in one way, that it, there's sufficient evidence and that it points in that direction. But that could be me being naive. Yeah, I feel like we've seen this quite a bit, not just necessarily in our podcast, but just cases in general that are out there. I know I've seen it quite a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So the one is um, the case of Assistant U.S. Attorney Jonathan Luna, and they think that Ray's disappearance might be linked to it. So a brief synopsis, Jonathan was the Assistant U.S. Attorney of Baltimore, Maryland, but his body was found stabbed 36 times with his own pocket knife. Then he was drowned in a creek next to his car in Lancaster County, PA in 2003. Jonathan's case was has a lot of similarities to Ray, most notably the fact that both Ray and Jonathan were involved in a police operation that busted a very large drug ring based in New York City. And that would be the motive. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah. Jonathan's death is still considered unsolved, and police haven't ruled out suicide, which makes me kind of want to roll my eyes. Okay, who the hell would commit suicide by stabbing themselves 36 times with a pocket knife? Anyone? Anyone? Yeah. I mean, I guess if you really are in that place, you really want to end it, it's all you've got. I mean, I, I can't imagine 
that it would be anybody's first choice, but if you're in that state that you're at the point of being being ready to die by suicide, I mean, who knows, but it definitely seems like you would run out of steam to continue stabbing yourself. Um, when your body go into shock? Right. Right. I mean, maybe 36 is what it takes for your body to go into shock. I don't know. I mean, I'm interested so, to know because pocket knives can be like this small or this small. How right. what are we talking about? This is, Was it a retractable knife? Foldable? <laughs> These are important yeah. questions, Amanda. I know, but like <laughs> immediately I want to say like how many licks to the center of a Tootsie Roll pop? How many stab wounds until you go into shock? Like, I don't know. And on... <laughs> Wouldn't you slit your wrists or your throat or something that's going to like, you know, is going to kill you unless he was trying to stab himself in the heart. I just don't see it. And then he missed 35 times. <laughs> like what? Right. Well, and then he was also drowned. So how do you stab yourself 36 times and then drown yourself? I mean, I guess if you like fall yeah. into the water or something, but that's kind of the theory. So the thought was that some of the wounds appear to be hesitated and that when he finally got weak from either blood loss or tired from stabbing himself, that he fell off the embankment into the water. And I haven't got too far in the case yet, but I did find out that Jonathan was accused of stealing money and some other really shady shit. So he died prior to his appointment for a polygraph test. Convenient. Yeah. Authorities investigated it for links, and they said that they didn't find anything credible that would link them together. And we'll dive into Jonathan's case later. So a little backstory on the drug ring. Only a few weeks before Ray's announcement of his retirement, he assisted in taking down the largest heroin operation that Senny Counter has ever seen. Drug ring leader Lee was arrested by officers at the Center County Drug Task Force shortly after he allegedly arranged to deliver three... Well, that's convenient timing. Right? The following Monday, Ray was to have a hearing for those drug charges. Three days after the disappearance, Laura issued a statement at a press conference. Quote, I want more than anything to hear your voice and for you to hug me. Maybe we can go for a hike, go up a mountain, and sit and talk. Please call. She also addressed the public by saying, quote, To anyone else out there, if you have seen my father, please contact police. I'm not crying. I just have something in my eye. It's heartbreaking. Seriously. At this point, the FBI is involved, and they start to analyze bank accounts and phone records, credit card statements, but nothing. The family had an attorney announce a reward for $10,000 for anyone with information, but get this, it had a deadline of 12 months, and after that, it was removed and no longer available. So that's interesting. I mean, it might not really mean anything. I've just never heard of an expiring reward for help finding a missing person. I have to wonder if the family thought maybe it would entice some information to come sooner rather than later. Um, and the the way it appears to me is that the money was being put up from the family, not like another agency or police department or anything like that. Um, now, I could be wrong in that, but if the money was coming from the family, 
I can understand giving that year and then saying, okay, well now this $10,000 is going to go towards something else to progress the case. If it's still open at that point. Yeah. I don't think I've ever seen that before either, but if you actually like think about it a little bit, it can make sense if our assumptions are right. Yeah, that does. That does make sense. I think it makes sense. It's just not something that we've seen before. So it's just kind of odd. Yeah. I know there's another case that I just finished researching of this like brutal death of a 78 year old woman. And it's been like 15 years and they have a massive $90,000 reward available. Whoa. I'm just having a hard time wrapping my head around the fact that he's this big public figure and it's only $10,000 for 12 months. Like you can buy an extended car warranty that has better coverage. Someone can call you about your car's warranty for longer than that. <laughs> well, that's what I was thinking. He must have so many, so much money and assets and stuff like that. I $10,000 to me didn't seem like that much for such a high profile person. No, no, it doesn't. Yeah, I was thinking that as well, but who knows? On July 30th, um, 2005, just three months after Ray vanished, two fishermen spotted Ray's laptop while casting a line in the Susquehanna River. It was found beneath the bridge between Lewisburg and Milton, but there was no hard drive found inside. Two months after that, a woman was walking her dog along the riverbank and spotted a hard drive. It was literally within walking distance from where Ray's vehicle was parked. The hard drive was so badly damaged that nothing could be recovered from it, but that didn't stop authorities from trying to find answers. I think we all know by now that police always have to consider a spouse or significant other in a homicide or suspected homicide, so here's what I found. Ray's girlfriend, Patty, was born in 63, so she was 18 years younger than him. So to put it in perspective, Ray was 57 and Patty was 39 when they started dating and Ray was 59 when he disappeared and Patty was 42. I didn't find anything that would make me believe that she had motive to like off him. Plus within months of his disappearance, police announced that they did a polygraph test on Patty and Laura and both of them passed. Barbara, wife number one, passed away about four years prior. So unless you can resurrect her, you can kind of toss the theory of her out the window. I don't, however, have any information on wife number two. So fast forward to April of 2009, four years after his disappearance, police revealed that someone within the home had used a newly purchased computer and searched for, quote, how to wreck a hard drive, how to fry a hard drive, and also water damage to a notebook computer. Was Ray trying to hide something? I also read a posting online that said that searches of the home happened between 9 and 15 months prior to his disappearance. Like, he was searching that those subjects prior to him, his disappearance. He supposedly also asked coworkers how to erase hard drives, one being a defense attorney. Now, I don't know if the second part is true, but if it is, it definitely makes me think, like, what he's trying to hide. Patty said that she knew about the home computer and Ray wanted it so that he didn't have to have his personal information on his computer for work since he would be retiring soon. I can totally understand having different computers for personal and work use. I mean, like I have my work laptop, my school laptop, but then I have my personal laptop too. So like I don't do any of our podcast stuff or whatever on my work laptop. Um, I like that they can stay separate and I can definitely see where he would 
want that, especially with the field of work that he was in. Um, but it's kind of not kind of, it's definitely weird that he was trying to figure out how to destroy a hard drive. I'm curious about what he was afraid of getting out there. Like, was it threats or evidence or was it something that he just shouldn't have had on his personal computer? Um, and also, do we know if he was the one that made the searches on the home computer? Like, do we know maybe if Patty used it as well or like Ray admitted that he was looking for those? Because I'm thinking, I mean, if I have an issue that might be legal, I might talk to friends or family members that are in that world and ask them things. So if he had a friend that needed to know how to clear a hard drive, you know, maybe he would be looking some things up and talking to people he works with who might know those things. Um, I kind of lean more towards what you had mentioned that he was probably the one doing this, especially since his laptop was found the way it was. Um, but I just wonder if maybe it was him looking for someone else's benefit, but not his own benefit. I don't know if that even makes sense. Yeah. If he's researching for a case or something like that, um, that's definitely a possibility. I think it's weird that they were found separated for like maximum damage. Like if it was still in the computer, it probably would have been a little bit more protected than that. Yeah, um, that's it, true. Patty said that, um, like she was always forthcoming about everything. She handed over everything immediately. And I read one post that said that he typically kept his laptop in a closet and she assumed that it was there. So she went to hand it over to police. It wasn't, it was missing. So I don't know if she, if they directly asked, it wasn't released, but we know the police, you had said, <laughs> did they ask Ray? Well, <laughs> I don't think we could ask Ray. Well, no, but like, had he admitted anything or said anything to Patty before he went missing? Like, okay. If, um, sorry, not, I may have misspoken. I was like, um, not, not that they, they released, but there is so much information on this case and it's hard to determine like what is real and what's fake because it's everybody's theory and the news reports like just you know, the hair on that mystery woman, is it short or long? Right. There's just so many uncertainties. Yeah. So at this point, a task force was formed and started meeting monthly to review the case. And for what I understand, they still meet to this date. Laura Ray's daughter and trustee of his estate petitioned the court in June of 2011 for him to be declared dead. A month later on July 25th, 2011, and six years after Ray's disappearance, the Center County authorities declared him dead by absentia. Something I found a little strange was that there was no memorial service or funeral was ever held for Ray. Can I ask you a quick question? I yeah. thought that, I don't know how long it is, but I know it has to be a certain amount of years before anyone can be declared dead without a body. And I also know, maybe it's state by state, but I know that there was another case where a woman was cheating on her husband and his, with his best friend and they pushed him in and tried to make it look like alligators ate him. And she was trying to get the money, but they she didn't want to do a memorial. But the people of 
the insurance money refused to pay out unless there was a memorial to signify that the family was acknowledging that he did die. Like. Interesting. That is interesting. So Google (laughs) coming in clutch. Um, According to Wikipedia, it says that it takes 20 years to declare a missing person dead. After 10 years from someone's disappearance, a motion to declare the person legally dead can be filed in court. After that, another 10 years must pass before the person can be declared legally dead. However, there's no uh, date necessarily on when that was kind of put into play. Um, so it's very possible that, that that was not in effect at that point in time. Is dead and absentia maybe a different legal term? It just means like and, um, that they didn't find them. Yeah. You're, you're yeah. absent from life. Therefore you're legally considered dead. Well, I wonder if insurance companies have yeah. different policies since, you know, it's so much money at uh state. Oh, that's true. If they can have their yeah. own set of circumstances before money can be uh, given. I know it's very for insurance companies. I know it's like jumping through hoops. Um, the past like five years, we've had to uh, we had a couple deaths in my family, and some of them I had way more, uh, I guess, hands in the pot for it, and just dealing with like the insurance and the death and even like death certificate. It is like jumping through hoops. Like already you've lost somebody, but then they make it so freaking hard for the process after. It's ridiculous and. It's, it's, it's crazy. And I know for one of them, so when you're the person on, you're the one receiving the money, it can take so long. They don't give you updates and, and it's not, it's not about the money, but for like, I guess people who want the money, this person wants the money. Um, it can feel like forever. Um, it, or what if you need it for a funeral? Cause oh, it doesn't work like, <laughs> I don't No, No. you can get reimbursed. You have to provide the receipt. At least that is what my family had to do. Okay. Um, And so it's so hard because when they're like, oh, you should have an insurance policy. Like you don't get it the minute they die. That's one thing that's so frustrating when I'm talking to people because they're like, oh, we're going to do like an extravagant thing. Like maybe after the funeral, you're going to a restaurant and you're paying for everyone to have a meal. That shit adds up so fast. Like it is so much money and people will order all this extravagant food or extra drinks, which is first of all shitty anyway. Yeah. Damn. But um, it's a lot of freaking money. And just for the death certificate, get this. I mean, I don't know if any of you know this. Um, it costs money to get a death certificate and you can get a discount if you order them up front. But after that, it costs double, it costs double to get them later on. Oh, absolutely. And so I should order now. Well, the the other like really (laughs) shitty thing is like, if you need to close a bank account, if you need to close, um, your phone bill, you need to have a copy of it and they take it. They won't take a copy. They have to have the actual, like the one that's mailed to you. Yep. So you need multiple ones. It's like a money scheme. It's freaking ridiculous. And even, yeah, it's like changing your name with your marriage. Yeah. Certificate Goodness gracious. Yes. And you have to pay for the it's copies. It's just ridiculous. Yeah. And even then, like, so when my mom died, 
trying to cancel her phone bill was ridiculous. And they kept arguing and they're like, oh, well, can you just pay it? Like, what? No, I'm not going to just pay. I was like, fine. You want to know something? Don't cancel it. Have the charges keep going. But like, I'm letting you know she's dead. Like, I'll give you the death certificate. Like, what the hell do you want? They're like, oh, she's on the contract. I'm like, the bitch died. What do you want? What? (laughs) Pretty sure that nullifies the contract. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. It's so frustrating. And it just goes on and on and on. I mean, we ran into so many roadblocks for things when my grandfather passed away, my mom, my grandmother. It was just miserable. I was... It's like they take advantage. It's anyway, I'm sorry. Well, and as if it's not <laughs> as if it's not hard enough, like and then they have all these these additional things in place. Oh, yeah. I know maybe that's why Ray's daughter did it petitioned at six years because she knew it would take another like four I mean, to get anything done. Yeah. Yeah. It's sad. It is. Um I know we saw another case or another case that I researched was Sherry McGarrow and they, her parents didn't hold a like memorial because they thought that it would close a chapter that they didn't have a resolution to. So maybe that was the case here. Like they don't have an answer. So what are they going to memorialize? I would assume so. Sarah Bames family didn't have a funeral, um, for about 12 years after her disappearance. And that was even a couple years after her remains were officially identified. I think it happens a lot, especially in cases like this where the body's not found. Um, even like Sarah Bame, you know, it, it took nine years before it was identified as her. So, you know, even if they're legally declared dead, I think there's a lot of families out there that don't want to have that service until they have that conclusion, right? Like, if they might still be alive, you don't want to... You know, have a memorial service you want to hold on to that hope that they're alive somewhere i'm thinking there could be religious reasons as well just depending on certain religions you may you know oh yeah the body may be even more important to have there oh yeah so very true yeah i didn't think of that this episode of Keystone Cold Cases is sponsored in part by Tattered Flag Brewery and Stillworks, a veteran-owned and operated business. Specializing in craft beer, spirits, and food, you can get your fill of Tattered Flag online or go to any of their locations. While they always have a consistent delicious menu, the rotating specials are definitely worth the trip. A favorite spot for this KCC host can become a favorite spot for you. Check out Tattered Flag online or in Middletown, Hershey, Gettysburg or Lancaster today. Meanwhile, over 2000 miles away in Utah, a man was arrested. The man had no ID on him and either refused to give his name or he just didn't really know who he was. His mugshot was released to the public for an ID and immediately gained national attention. The man's height, weight, lips, and even some of his wrinkles on his face matched Ray. Center County police immediately sent fingerprints off to see if it was a match, but unfortunately it didn't and they're back to where they started. And I'll have the mugshot on our website if it's like a split view of like half his face and half of this mystery man's face. And it is insane how how much they match. Yeah, I'm looking at it and you're not kidding. It's, you would never really know that they were different people. No, it's crazy. Like maybe the only difference is one shaped their face and one didn't. Right. 
But if you're hiding a couple... Well, that's crazy. Yeah. So there's quite a bit of theories on exactly what happened. And we'll co- we already covered a few, but we can dig into a few more. Um, one is the convicted offender. Ray had tried dozens of cases in his 30 years, and it could be someone looking to seek revenge. In 2013, a former member of the motorcycle club Hell's Angels reported that Ray was killed by another member for revenge for his prison sentence. So if you're not too familiar with this group, um, other than being a biker gang, various agencies classify them, um, the Hell's Angels, as one of the big four motorcycle gangs, along with the Pagans, the Outlaws, and the Banditos. It's thought that members carry out widespread violent crime, um, organized crime, including drug dealing, trafficking of stolen goods, extortion, prostitution operations. However, members continuously state that only the group of motorcycle enthusiasts who have joined to like do rides and organize social events such as road trips, fundraisers, parties, and stuff. And they maintain that any crimes that are committed are responsible of those individuals and not of the club as a whole. All I can say is I wouldn't mess with Hell's Angels. Yeah, no. You don't want them on your bad side. Mm-hmm. Having them on your good side might be beneficial, but yeah, I'm I'm with you on that. I think the basic theory here that it's someone who he convicted or that he was involved in their case would make a lot of sense. Just retaliation, anger, whatever emotion. Um, I think that's a pretty logical path to look at. So it leads me to two other theories along those lines. Um, the next one, apparently in 2005, a prisoner came forward and reported that his cellmate had told him that he and another man were contracted to kidnap and kill Ray. They said that they had a woman lure Ray to a hotel where they broke his neck and put his body in the trunk of a car, and they drove him off and dumped him somewhere. Now, the jailhouse snitch, is he trying to get on a cent off, like, time off of a sentence? Is it possible that he's lying, but his story seems also credible? Possible? Not credible. I mean, it could be possible. Do we know if there were any more details from this informant that aligned with parts of the crime that weren't publicized. Um, I mean, obviously as far as where the body ended up or whatever, you know, we don't know any of that because it still hasn't been found, but I would assume they at least followed up on it. Do we know anything more or is it just kind of the basics that we have? just the basics. They didn't release anything or not that I saw anywhere. Okay. So another theory has to deal with the Sandusky scandal in 98. Ray refused to press charges against Jerry Sandusky for allegations of sexual abuse on minors. And I don't think I need to recap on that because it was pretty much everywhere in PA. Yeah. People were not happy that Jerry got off scotch-free, and therefore they thought it was some kind of personal reason that got him off, like he either paid Ray or they had some type of friendship. His colleagues thought, though, um, his colleagues, though, said that it's 100% false. Ray was the kind of guy that would prosecute his family if he had sufficient evidence to take him to court. So 
damn right as far as prosecuting your family. But even if he did refuse to press charges against Sandusky, there could be other reasons like insufficient evidence to charge him with what he specifically wanted to charge him with. So it doesn't necessarily mean he didn't want to. But from what I've gathered, DAs do not like to gamble. I think that's a really valid point. And I think that often as a society, we kind of forget that the personal beliefs and opinions can't really come into play with things in the law. You know, I mean, now looking back, we know that, yeah, I mean, Sandusky's a scumbag, but in 1998, there wasn't the proof that was needed or, you know, there likely wasn't the proof that was needed. And, you know, if you don't want to take that gamble, then, I mean, I can, I can see it. And I have to also think like if every time someone made a negative remark about someone else, if we just believed everybody took everyone at their word, then it would just, it would be a mess. I mean, we also know now that Sandusky was in the wrong, but how many times are you in a similar situation where it turns out that that person wasn't in the wrong? And if you had persecuted them and, um, you know, gone through, not persecuted, prosecuted, well, they both work, but if you had prosecuted that person and they were said to be guilty and you later found out they weren't, I mean, it, it can throw things off. So all of that rambling mess, just to say you can't really in law express your personal beliefs and opinions. You have to go by the law. You have to go by what's written. And I just think we forget that a lot. Yeah. And I mean, this was the late nineties. So people definitely weren't at the point where they were really believing abuse victims. Yeah. So, I mean, there's that as well. I mean, you still can't just go off of people's word, but you know, they would believe you even less. So I feel back then, especially coming from a kid. Yeah, absolutely. There's two other theories. And honestly, I feel like all of them, all of them that these two kind of fit the best in my opinion anyway. So the first one is the runaway. It sounds crazy considering Ray had so many people in his life counting on him at the, at home and work, but is it really that crazy? Something to support the theory is that Ray was really interested in the case of the Cleveland police chief that disappeared to start a new life. So could he have studied that case to learn the do's and don'ts on how to disappear? Another point is Ray was fluent in Slovenian. Is that right, Sarah? Mm-hmm. Okay. Slovenian. And had visited relatives in Slovenia in the past. He was also semi-fluent in Russian. Could he have gone overseas to disappear? The final thing that brings me this brings this theory into more of a possibility is that he had been reported to have been seen multiple times. A bartender and an off-duty cop both said that they saw Ray at a bar in Wilkes-Barre watching a baseball game. There were even reports of seeing him in the audience of Oprah Winfrey. One major sighting reported was in the Chili's restaurant in Texas. A woman said that she saw a man eating alone, and since Ray's story made national headlines, she was familiar with the photograph of him. 
She swore it was him. She struck up a conversation with the man and asked for directions, in which he replied he didn't live there. When she pushed for more information about where he was from, you could tell he was visually uncomfortable and finally responded with Tennessee. She ended up pretending to take a photo of her family, but snapped a few pictures of him instead, and I'll post them on our website for you to see. She took the photos to the local police who then showed the waitress that served them a, like a whole lineup of people, including race or like real photo. And she pointed to Ray immediately as being the man she served. The local PD then shared this information with center County authorities. Patty thought it was him, but Laura pointed out that the man was left-handed and Ray was right-handed. Something that goes against the theory is that none of Ray's luggage, clothing, or belongings were missing from his home. Okay, but referencing Sarah Bames' case again, all of those sightings were false. And also, I'd be uncomfortable, too, if someone came up to me in a Chili's and asked me where I lived. Yeah, true. that's... Um, that's true. Please don't do that to me. But no. Even if I was local, I'm not going to sit there and give you directions. Just don't talk to me in public. Um, and I mean, if you look at the picture, too... It looks like a white guy eating in a Chili's. I mean, you, you don't is. see tattoos or scars or anything insanely identifiable. So it really could go either way. Um, and the whole thought that he was hanging out at this bar in Wilkes-Barre, I feel like if you've got these connections outside of the country enough that you at least speak these other languages and wouldn't have to go to your family that's there, but you could at least get to the country. Why would you go a couple hours away in your home state if you're trying to disappear? It doesn't, that part doesn't seem. But wouldn't you at least like get to a different state or hit a drive through or something? So <laughs> that you're not And why would you go on seen? Oprah? <laughs> that doesn't make sense. <laughs> Yeah, I, I can I don't... see the baseball game, but like Oprah, come on. Yeah. Um, he went to Cleveland to see a baseball game, and then he went to Chicago to see Oprah being filmed. Those are two and places Chili's. that I would not go, so <laughs> I just can't understand this and then logic. Chili's in Texas. Yeah, I. Road trip. <laughs> it's really strange. Do you guys want to take the Ray road trip and just. Hit up all these places. <laughs> Add it to our list. KCC on. <laughs> KCC on tour. Our own tour where we just talk to each other. <laughs> so the final theory is witness protection. And it's theorized that this whole thing was planned. And given the other DA's death, Ray went into hiding with the help of the FBI. I personally tend to lean towards this because... Um, it seems to make the most sense to me for, you know, to, for starters, he knew that the other's DA's death was suspicious and both were working on drug charges for some pretty bad people. He was visibly stressed out and sleeping at work, which if you're worried that much about your life, I doubt you would want to sleep at home. Like kind of like the one eye open. If you're sleeping, I would sleep at work. Maybe that's just me. His hard drive was removed from the computer for maximum damage, so to me it was a planned thing and kind of proved true with the online searches found in his home computer. He was seen with a woman with short hair in a somewhat remote area, maybe long hair, but we're thinking short, 
And most agents tend to have shorter hair, or maybe that's just my perception, but this mystery woman could have been there to hand off new IDs and take him to his new life. He didn't take anything with him because he was starting a new life and his secret protected life, and he couldn't risk anyone knowing. And it could also be why he was out walking with Patty the night before and her being upset on the news was more of like her knowing that she, he can never come back versus like panicked as to he's missing and don't know where he is. But that's just my opinion. So on the surface, this kind of makes sense to me. Um, I am not a part of the witness protection program. I don't think I could tell you even if I was, but I'm not. (laughs) So I don't know the inner workings of all of it. Um, But I have to think like you wouldn't be able to meet up in a public place to get IDs and um, I, I'm not sure about some of the little details as you start kind of taking it apart. And also it would mean leaving everything and everyone behind, which it can absolutely be worth it if that's what's needed. But I have to wonder if Ray was willing to sacrifice, you know, his relationship with Patty, his relationship with Laura and like her future, um, in order to protect himself. I, I think it could happen. I wonder if it was in character for him though, to be willing to leave all of that. And if it would really protect them. Yeah. I'm kind of thinking that, yeah, he's not just sacrificing the relationships. What, what keeps these drug lords from still killing his family if he's going to go off by himself? Right. And it, yeah. He wasn't there to par- to prosecute them. He missed the meeting that Monday. Yeah, but I would yeah. think, and I mean, one of that my... someone else would pick it up. Right. I mean, one of my husband's cousins is married to an ADA in Virginia, and... I mean, I can ask her things like that, but I, I can't imagine that it would just be like, Oh, he missed a meeting. Everything is forgotten. Go back to doing what you're doing. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like that would still continue in some sense. There would have to be someone to to pick it up and keep going. But he would no longer be the threat because he wasn't around. Oh, that's true. I think it's the, the, what I'm getting at. And like how you said, like maybe not exchanging IDs and stuff in public, I guess the other point could be, you know, he's in courthouses and probably in police stations and other places that might've been an easier place to hand off something like that. But maybe it would have also drawn attention like, Hey, who is this person from the FBI or who was this person from? I don't know who usually does like, yeah, I have no, what's the, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, witness protection. Like, I don't know who's, who's in charge of it. Does anyone know? (laughs) Super secret. Yeah. So like maybe if FBI, he didn't want someone to see that in at work or whatnot. And the doctor, I mean, the doctor he met in Raystown could have been for his mental health or could have been something to do with the disappearance. That's true. Didn't he meet him? Where did you say he met the doctor? Racetown Lake. Racetown. So, like, who meets their doctor at a lake? I don't know. Like, let me give you this physical <laughs> down by the lake. Yeah. And, like, it's April, so it's not going to be a lot of traffic there. 
That's true. I don't know. If someone threatened, I mean, if the drug lords were threatening me, I would go under protection. Even if, like, if it was saving my family, I would do it in a heartbeat. As hard as it would be. Yeah. Like when Hermione uh, erased her parents' memories of her. Sarah looks really disappointed in me. <laughs> I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. No, I, I'm a little bit mad that I didn't think of it. Like... <laughs> We own three copies, two copies of every single book because my husband and I each have a complete set of the books. And sometimes you just have to make that sacrifice. I'll let you have this one. It's okay. Thank you. Anyway. Anyway, um, race case has received a lot of attention over the years. It was featured on many TV shows and even podcasts, none of which have brought the family answers as to what really happened to Ray. At the time of his disappearance, Ray was six feet tall, 172 pounds, had brown hair with gray in it and green eyes. He was wearing a blue fleece jacket, blue jeans, and sneakers. If you have any information, please contact Belfont Police Department at 814-353-2320. That's all we have for this episode of Keystone Cold Cases Podcast. Please remember to never reach out to family or friends of the victims, only to law enforcement if you have any information. This episode was researched and hosted by me, Amanda. Find all our sources, social media connections, and contact information at kccpod.com. Theme music and production assistance by Darren Makins. Please join us next week for another case to sleuth out.